0: Um, uh, I invited uh, Tim um, to join us today. He's a church planner here in Nashville, and he's the author of The Permanent Revolution with Alan Hirsch, which uh, Rob touched on cites as um, one of his prime influences in uh, wanting to start the Well Coffee House. And um, Tim has, and I have talked for uh, a while about um, Things like God's desire to participate with us and the, the, the theme of participation in the scriptures and in, in the meaning of Christianity. And so he's going to talk to us, I think, about uh, the atonement and how that um, kind of plays into some of these things and maybe give us some some other uh, ways to approach this very interesting and complex subject. So um, welcome, Tim. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, sure
1: thing. Thanks for inviting me. Um, okay, I've got some handouts, yeah. um, but I think I've got enough. I've heard out 10, so um, the, uh, if there's not enough, then you find it online, online on your phone. Um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to take a stab at just like one, one piece of, the pie, of a very big pie. and um, there's so many places to start when you start talking about the atonement or about what Jesus did for us um, and really if you can think about it like this um, like we all know the, we all know the principle of you know this is the end of a of a gun, a gun barrel um, and you kind of point the gun this way um, if you point the gun this way, the distance between these two points is not that great in the beginning. Right? But if you keep going, eventually you have some pretty strong disparity um, in what you're looking at. And the reason why there's multiple views and multiple models of the atonement, the reason why there's a spectrum of views, Um, So you could put um, what some people call penal substitution up here Um, and then you could put uh, another model down here which you could call the Abilardian, which is the example model. The reason why is because they're working from a different foundation and they have a different starting point. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the starting point And then that'll kind of set the trajectory um, for where you end up arriving at. So, what's uh? Let me see. Do we have an eraser? Yeah, there's. They're on the other end end of this thing. How clever is that? (laughs) Oh my gosh! And they are magneted together. So you actually have? Do they? Uh,
0: Some of them, I think they'll stick to the board.
1: Okay, these two are magneted together. How clever is that? Um, You're welcome. Did you bring those? Okay. Um, Somebody gets the design award on that. Um, Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to actually define the problem because how you define the problem determines how you understand the solution, right? So if you misdiagnose what the problem is, then your solution is going to be totally different from somebody else who diagnoses the problem in, a, in another way. Um, so let's open up, if you got your Bible, let's open up to Romans 7. And I've actually got it printed out there on your paper in case you don't have it. But um, what Paul does in Romans 7 is he's going to open up um, he, he basically takes a microscope, and what the Old Testament talks about, the human condition or human nature, um, you typically only get language about good and evil in the Old Testament. Um, and what the diagnosis of Israel's scriptures are is that the human nature, the language they use in the Old Testament is the human heart, is that the human heart... Um, is sick, or you may even get language that the human heart is evil, okay, now, um, when they say heart, what they're really alluding to is that your, your entire being, um, the human nature, okay, so what Paul does in Romans 7 is he's not satisfied with just kind of saying, you know, the bumper sticker Twitter version, right, like, he's, he's not going to do 180 characters, what he's going to do is he's going to do a blog post. And he's going to give more language and more definition to the human condition. Okay? So let's, let's start off in, in Romans 7. We'll start reading here. Um, and what you'll find when you start reading is that Paul's going to make a distinction between the person and his human nature. Okay? This is, this is really important. All right, so let's, let's read through, and, and we'll, we'll pause at various points, and I'm very much into dialogue, so please feel free to say, hey, what about this, what about that, okay. Um, dude, we got background music. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome again. You, you, you know this necessitates an offer call at the end, right? Like this is, uh, That's right. Um, all right, okay, verse 16. Uh, Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, okay? So you have on one side, Paul is saying me, I, and then he shifts over and creates another category. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, okay? Now... You know there's a difference between sin... Like The best way to probably write this would be... um, There's a difference between sin and sin or sins. Right? Sin, in Romans, predominantly, is a power. And the way Paul talks about sin in Romans 7, is that it's a foreign thing that has moved into him and now dwells inside of him. (laughs) Haven't you guys seen the movie Alien? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What does the woman do when she figures out she has something in her that does not belong there? Y'all remember that scene? When she starts realizing that there's something inside of her, literally, that should not be there, be she, or something? she tries to cut it out. Yeah. She she freaks out. Okay. For Paul, there's something called sin, a power that is in his being. Or. Later on, he's going to actually qualify that. There's something in him. And the word dwell there is oikos. It means it's kind of like a house. So there's a house, and there's someone in the house that should not be there.
2: So he's given Sam a personality as the Holy Spirit is a
1: personality. I would say, I, I think I know what you're saying there. Because I'm real geeky and nerdy on birds and stuff and concepts. I wouldn't want to say that he personifies it, um, even though he does. I think at its root, so, like, if you go back to the Genesis narrative, it's really important that, you know, the two trees, the tree of life, and you've got the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's really important, I think, that there's a fruit, and they actually eat, and something actually goes into their body. So, so there's something ontological there, there's an actual entity. Well, I mean, the same thing with the Holy Spirit. I mean, when it says
2: that when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're baptized into it. Yes. It into you. Yes. So, yes. I mean, there's that same kind of <coughs> indwelling. Yes. Word yes. Word usage. Yes. Um, verbiage that does yes. seem
1: to be very similar. Yes. So maybe one distinction would be sin is a something and the Holy Spirit is someone. Yeah. Like that, you know, because I wouldn't want to say that Paul's sort of just romanticizing the concept of sin and creating a personality. It's an entity, but it's not a person, but it's a or But he does have
2: it, give it a little bit of a, a living. Yes, concept. it is living. It is living. That's right. right. He does call the Holy Spirit a he, which Yes. is just that, that, yes. that different terminology he never yes. calls. Him, he, she, it, or yes. anything, but yet he
1: does kind of give it a living. It thing. is
0: dynamic. Yeah, it is dynamic. Yes, I think uh, I always think about the fact that in Revelation, Satan and his minions are beasts. Uh-huh. They're a dragon and beast and so forth. They're not persons. Uh-huh. They're, uh They're, but they are. They are living and active and. Yes. And, so I think that that's interesting. Like we tend to see Satan as like a person, but Revelation wants to see Satan as this this monster. Yeah. Paul's not a nun to the
2: temple that needs to be cleaned. Yeah. Because things dwell in the temple. Yes. That's right. That even sin can come into the temple if you clean it and you don't clean it right. That's oh, right. That's, not, that's my paraphrase. But yes. It can come back in and dwell in you even bigger. It's like, wait a minute. Yes. So yeah. That's
1: good. That's good. All right. Well, let's keep reading here.
2: That is interesting, though, that he kind of makes it a living thing. It is. It's a
1: dynamic force. It's a force. It's a power that is at work. Yeah. Which I think is important because we, when we talk about sin, we think about something that you do, right? And anybody know what the definition of sin is? Your mind, take some of these words that you think you know what they mean <laughs> and get nerdy and go on etymology or go on blueletterbible.org and look at the actual definition of these words. Okay? The word sin is, in the Greek, is hamartia, and it's actually a secular word, and all it means is to miss the mark. It's from the word archery. That's all it means. So, you know, you could be at a, at one of those you know medieval Renaissance festivals, <laughs> and they're doing their archery contest. Every person who misses the bullseye sends, so <laughs> which which brings new language to life When Paul says we all have and falling short, it basically means the arrow didn't even make the the target. Mm. Right? That's what he means by fall short. Is that we didn't have enough strength or accuracy and to get the arrow to the target. Basketball players and others. Mr. Shy. Mr. Shy, yeah. It's a secular term, right? So it's not a Bible word. Paul was looking for a term that captured the essence of getting off track. Okay? All right, let's keep reading. But sin that dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Ooh. If we were to stop right there, you could say, well, Calvinism is true, that we, we are all totally depraved. Right? But then I would say, ah, oh, but he doesn't stop right there. What he does is, he says, oh, let me qualify that. I somewhat misspoke. That is, where? In my flesh. See, but Paul is taking a microscope of this thing, man. He's not willing to say, you are evil. He's not willing to say, you are sin. What he is willing to say is that there is something in me that is in my flesh. Okay. Now the word flesh there is sarts, and it's, it's the most negative term the Greeks would use to describe what's wrong with humanity. Right. So instead of calling humanity like jacked up or a piece of, mm, they would say flesh. They would say SARS. So where is Paul locating the problem? It's within the human body, within the human condition. Right? And yet there's something about a human being that is different from the flesh and sin. He's separating them out. This is really important because. When Paul talks about wrath, okay, wrath is never directed at the person. It's always directed at the corrupted human nature. So for example, when a surgeon operates on a cancer patient, the surgeon has wrath. The word wrath means passion. Passion against. Okay, it's actually where we get our, our, our word orgy from, um, which kind of captures the actual act of the sexual orgy, but then it also captures the after effect of the sexual orgy, which is oftentimes over married people in orgies, and the wrath against would be the after effect of that orgy, whether it be violence after the orgy. Right, so. What what Paul's saying here, what Paul is allowing us to see is that God's wrath is like a, a doctor operating a cancer patient. His wrath is against the cancer, but the only reason why he's against the cancer is because he loves the patient. So wrath is actually an expression of God's love. Just like the woman in the movie Alien, he wants to cut out the thing in us that's killing us. He wants to do surgery, which is why he often talks about circumcising the heart, cutting away a part of our nature. Is that where, like, the, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out? Somewhat. Somewhat doing surgery. Um, I mean, I would say the... I would differentiate there somewhat and say that that is talking about the actual instrument, which would be the symptom, and that God actually wants to go into the source, which is on the Sermon on the Mount, he deals with the heart. He diagnoses the heart as the problem. Um, All right, let's keep reading. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, and he shifts gears, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, this kind of stuff makes us really uncomfortable because this is, this sets up that scenario where we confront someone And we say, why did you do that? And and what is their response? It wasn't me, it was my flesh, right? So where does accountability come in when you start parsing this out? When you start saying, it's not me, it was my flesh, right? This is is why Romans 7 is so controversial um, in diagnosing the human condition.
2: Some of this to addiction, too, because some people say that the addiction is separate from the person that they do not do what they want to do because of the addiction compels them. Yes, and there's you know, if you read it literally, that's what he's saying. Yeah. no
1: blame, but he goes on, of course, that's right, that's right, because <laughs> you cannot separate the person. From their nature, and yet they're different. So it, you know, I, I think Paul was definitely, he was aware of Trinitarian understandings of God, and I think this Bionitarian understanding of the person versus nature, they're different, and yet they're one. And yet the difference makes all the difference in the world. We are one human being, And yet we have a person and a nature. This is going to come in really important. We start talking about the atonement um, in a few minutes. All right. So, no longer I do, but sin that dwells in me. There's an infection. If you want to use some medical language, Paul says I've been infected or I've been invaded by this foreign entity that's taken up residence inside of me. So verse 21 Um, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do good that one says right the word is good in there evil lies close at hand for I delight in the law of God in my inner being Okay, so verse 21 he uses two words there uh, for good and evil which is he's kind of doing a play on words um, in, in the original languages Um, The word for good is kalos, and the word for evil is kakos. And so uh, Paul's being kind of clever here in his language. Um, If you double-click on this word for good, you'll find that it has a, it kind of means like um, something that is healthy something that is fitting. It even has the idea of beauty. Um, It's a relational term. But it's it's also a developmental term. It's developmental. To be good means that you are functioning properly. You are healthy. You are fit. You have capacity. Evil is actually the very opposite of that. It carries the idea of being unhealthy. It carries the idea of sickness. Because evil is something that frustrates, it limits our developmental capacity. (laughs)
2: Like a child. Somewhat. Well, and this kind of child wanting to please dad because that's what they really want in their inner being to please their father. Yes. Yeah. Or their parents. But yet we all, especially parents know that the children don't always make that choice because whatever, you know. Yes. Yeah. Because there's I don't know why I did it. Is, why did you smack your sister? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not saying that's evil that made them smack their sister, but yes. you know the there to me is very similar because in their heart of hearts they also not evil for a 13-year-old to do it because developmentally a 13-year-old is not developed. A 13-year-old still has things going on in their life and their brain chemistry and all that that make them make wrong choices too.
1: I mean, that's one of the things they... That's, a, that's a whole other discussion actually. But I mean, that... that whole <laughs> Well, I got 15 said. minutes. Alright, let me keep going. Alright. Um, okay, verse 21. We're going we're gonna to through here, okay? Um, well, this is a hard... You picked a tough passage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but it's juicy, and like I said, if, if, if you can make this differentiation, um, you can get a lot of mileage out of this if you start thinking about the atonement. Okay? Um, Alright, let's keep reading. Verse 23. But I see in my members... Okay, this is language from Romans 6 where he says, Do not yield you, your members as instruments of unrighteousness? He's talking about his hands, legs, ears. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to a law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, if you notice, um, there's a picture of a human body on your paper there. This is very strategic. Because when we typically talk about the atonement, what we tend to say is, some people don't say it, Explicitly, but this is what they mean. There was, here's God, the Father. Here's us. And here's Jesus. We've got this problem with God. But then Jesus doesn't. And so what Jesus does is he directs his life and his sacrificial offering on the cross he triangulates and does something to God so that this gets taken care of in other words it's a transaction that takes place somewhere out there that what Jesus does for us, it somehow does something to God and then changes God so that he can now interact with us are y'all tracking on that? Now, that's the version of the gospel that I grew up with. And I would say it is 100% wrong. I was going to say that. This. <laughs> it is 100% wrong. Okay? For example, the um, concept of uh, um, of uh, ransom, right? That Jesus ransomed us. In a ransom, who gets paid? The kidnapper. The kidnapper. If Jesus is ransoming us, who is he ransoming us from? Is he saving us from God? No. That would make God the captor. (laughs) We know that that's not right. (laughs) Right? So the payment... Is not being made to God because that would make Him the kidnapper. The payment is going somewhere else. Does this makes sense. Um, even deeper than that is the concept of forgiveness. Okay. So, for example, if let's say let's say I borrow a hundred bucks from you, okay, and then I go off and spend it, and then I come back later and say, "Man." I'd really like to pay you back, can you wait a month? And you wait a month, and I come back after that, I say, man, can you give me three months? Remember that?" And finally I just say, you, I can't pay you back, okay? If you forgive me of that debt, do you ever get paid? The definition of forgiveness is that you don't get paid. Right? When God forgives us, it's not because he gets paid by Jesus. That's not forgiveness. That's called, I still get paid. I just got it from somebody you made a deal with. Right? It's not forgiveness if you get your money. See, this this is really important because... It changes the way we see God and how He sees us. If Jesus gets God off of our back, that makes Jesus the bully on the playground. The principal, the vengeful guy. All right. So let's let's look at Romans eight verse three, and we will we'll wrap this thing up real quick. Like. Um, In Romans 8 verse 3 it says that for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. What kind of body did Jesus have? Did he have the same kind of body that Paul had in Romans 7? Did Jesus have sin dwelling in his flesh? Yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He had the power of sin dwelling in his flesh, just like Paul. What makes Jesus different from us is that Jesus condemned the sin in his flesh. Okay, well, what does that word condemn mean? This is what the word "condemn" means. the word katakrina and the word kata means to throw down and the word krina means to separate that's what condemn means to separate and to throw down What did Jesus do with the sin that was in his flesh? He separated it from himself. In other words, he resisted it. He overcame it. He overcame it. with participation. God sent his son Which means once you step in the battle, it's no longer theory, it's no longer concept and idea, it's do or die. So when Jesus went into the womb of Mary and a baby came out, the battle was on. And if Jesus did anything to compromise his victory, he would have compromised the atonement. I've got several verses down here at the bottom. There's a guy in the third century named Gregory of Nazianzus, and he says he's famous for this. He's famous for a lot of things, but he says the unassumed is the unhealed. Now, another another geek moment about a Bible word. The word salvation. If you double click on that word. the Greek word sozo soterion, soteriology sozo heal that sounds a lot like good doesn't it that sounds a lot, a lot like the opposite of evil what Jesus does is he makes contact with the disease he enters into the human body into the human condition and throughout the whole course of his life he's healing his human nature he's taking responsibility for uniting his divinity with his humanity and that union between his human nature his corrupted human nature and his divine nature something's got to give something's going to something's going to move the other and what Jesus does his entire life is he moves his human nature, and he heals it. Now, so that, that first see there is a communion. That when John says, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld the glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." What he's saying is, is that divinity is making contact with the problem. Literal. With the corruption in human nature. Um, the second C is, uh, is converted. So, what is Jesus doing with his human nature? He enters into communion with it through incarnation, and then he starts converting it. Um, when Luke says that, um, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, that word grow there is pro and it was used in two instances. One was when a boat was in in a storm and the wind and the waves were beating against the boat, but then the boat was able to move forward in spite of resistance, okay? What is resisting Jesus' development? Did he have any internal forces resisting his development? Yeah. Did he have any external resources? A lot. He had things that were resisting his development as a human being, but Luke says that he moved forward anyways. He never let them advance. It never took him, it never took the boat off course. He was never pushed back. He always moved forward, right? This is, this is amazing for him to say about a human being, especially a 12-year-old. Well, this puts a lot of perspective on that. He was fully human. Fully
0: divine, like I've always yes. thought about that. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. you got, but this like actually puts
1: meat to the bone. Yes, it's why he became a human, yeah. so that he could convert his his human nature back to God. Um, the second, the third thing is a cleanse. This is Hebrews two. Um, the key to understanding the Book of Hebrews is chapter one, verse three, where it says he purged our sins, where he cleansed it. It's uh. It's catharsis. In the Greek word, it's he's catharting. He's cleansing. So why did Jesus have to become a human being? Because his divinity had to make contact with the unclean. The clean had to make contact with the unclean. And just like when Jesus touches a leper, he didn't get leprosy. But he cleansed the leper. When his divinity made contact with his humanity, it cleansed his humanity. know, it's like lot of people want to give baptism
2: up you know they want to kind of downplay it but there is a power in baptism mystical or literal either one but baptism is a cleansing it even uses those words a washing and you know it's kind of interesting that these kind of things give more credibility to that mystical power that Literal one that people can see because sometimes people are not that bright. So, baptism gives them that chance to see a washing, they can understand that simple act of of washing. You know, you're you know, it's kind of that thing. It's it's always baptism is not just a literal thing where you go down in water, there's a kind of thing that happens, and the Bible alludes to it repeatedly. That there's a you know this washing, it is a it's where you come into contact with the blood. It's like well you know there's that blood, there's a, all kinds of things that go with baptism that's not literal. Mm-hmm. And we focus a lot.
1: I want to I want to ride that with you, but I'm gonna have to. Yeah. You mind if I keep rolling here? Because um, that's <laughs> gonna take us way off track. <laughs> I mean it's just that, that, that concept is baptism is not I'm track just literal. I'm hearing you. Yeah, but in order for us to dig into that... No, you, you go ahead, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so... The last C on there is um, is Cured. And it's the idea that um, when God raised Jesus from the dead, He actually changed His human nature into a glorious human nature. Uh, he magnified it. He transformed it. Okay? So, what what this means is that right now there's a human being in a human body sitting at the right hand of the Father and his humanity, his human condition is completely healed it's completely transformed now why does that matter? because what the Spirit does because the Father, Son, and Spirit are one and you see this later on in Romans 8 where he talks about the Spirit of God, and then in the next sentence he says Spirit of Christ, and then in the next sentence he just says Spirit. He's doing a Trinitarian understanding of the Holy Spirit. Right? So what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit takes what belongs to Jesus, His new humanity, and He shares that with us. That's that's why the Holy Spirit is so important to our understanding of the atonement. When you understand the atonement or the gospel as something happening between Jesus and God to get God off your back, it's a purely legal judicial understanding of the atonement. And you don't need the Holy Spirit for that. All you need is somebody in a court somewhere to say you're forgiven. Well, well, if you tell your kid not to go into the medicine cabinet, or like the cabinet underneath your sink and not to drink the Clorox out of the Clorox bottle, if your kid goes under the sink and drinks that bottle, what good is it if you say to your kid, I forgive you for doing that? It's <laughs> <That's> not fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you forgave him. What are you going to do now? He's got something inside of him that is, is going to kill him. Right, So what, what Jesus does, he doesn't just deal with forgiveness, he deals with the human condition. He comes and changes human nature in his own body. His own human body is changed. And the Holy Spirit takes that transformed, life-giving humanity, and he shares that with us through the Holy Spirit. But it's a down payment. Right? Which means it's not the full payment. It's a deposit, which is why you still die. But you also experience life now before you die. That's why Paul says if the Spirit of God, the Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will give life to your mortal body. And he will raise you from the dead. But in between resurrection and now, I have the same power that enabled Jesus to cleanse his humanity. Which is why Paul says, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, what enabled Jesus to cleanse and convert his human nature was his partnership, his participation in the Trinity, his relationship with the Father. What the Spirit does is it brings us into this, we are in Christ, we are in the Son, establishes this connection, which means I have the same relationship that Jesus had with the Father and the Spirit. I now participate in the Trinity, which is what allowed Jesus to cleanse His human nature. This is a beautiful understanding of the atonement. We're made whole and that we were separated from those. That's right. That were made whole now that That's we're right. In it. Yes. Now, you can talk about this. This is why I'm so jazzed about this. Number one, this is how they talked about the atonement in the first three centuries of the church. Right. Irenaeus, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. You don't get penal substitution until 16th century. Now, Augustine laid the groundwork for it in the mid-third century, but he, he didn't fully develop it. You don't get it until Anselm in the, in the 15th century and the Calvinists in the 16th century. I can share this with someone without ever having to make them feel guilty. Because everyone will agree there's something wrong with human nature disagree with that, you haven't been watching the news. I can share the good news of Jesus with someone without having to convince them that they're guilty. But they will end up owning a part of their nature. There's something not right there. There is injustice in I'll stop. I'm. I'm assuming I'm out of time.
0: Yeah, I think we're. I think we're at the limit there. But yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's. Uh, that's great. Thanks mm-hmm. for doing that. Yeah. I'm yeah. you yeah, uh, okay. to have Okay. Just for that one again. <laughs>